welcome to Season 2, Episode 15 of Game Dev with a Shot of Jameson. My name is Jameson Doral, and I'm a game designer with 20 years of experience. I like to help people learn more about video game development. Today we're doing something a little different. We're joined by Kyle Rowan, who's the design lead at Weird Games, where they make board games. We talk about how his online education prepared him for working from home, how cooperative board gaming has made it more accessible to a larger audience, and his time working on multiple board games with Weird Games. Don't forget you can join the conversation live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern over at twitch.tv forward slash Jameson Doral. There's a link in the show notes if you want to get your questions answered live next time. But for now, let's get this episode started. You ready to talk about games? Sure, let's talk about games about dogs. Uh, hey, that's... Maybe. A, I, don't, I don't have anything like that ready so well we we should though <laughs> i think this is a great idea so <laughs> why don't we start uh, a place i like to start is tell us about you growing up like where are you from what did you think you were going to do or what did your parents tell you you were going to do as you're growing up <laughs> uh so i grew up in pennsylvania uh eastern pennsylvania in the pocono mountains nice um and I didn't know what I wanted to be growing up, um, but I do remember the first time I, I realized that like game design was a path I could take. Um, it just kind of was like a a light just flickered on. Uh, it was Final Fantasy VI or three at the time. You know, I was mm-hmm. playing the the Super Nintendo uh, version way back when, and then I don't know what happened, but something in my head triggered that said. You know, someone wrote this stuff, you know, someone made Narsh. Right. And for whatever reason, like prior to that, it was all magic, right? Like it, it, these, these games just kind of came to be, uh, I didn't really think about the people behind them. Yeah. But when, whatever flipped that switch is when I wanted to start, you know, investigating game design. Um, at the time it was game writing, right? right. That, that was, mm-hmm. that was the goal. I didn't even know what design was. Okay. Was how how were to, you? Do you remember twelve? Okay. Maybe you yeah. know, like it was it was pretty early on. Um, so what I ended up doing was I I created a a role playing website back in the day before you know I I didn't even know what Dungeons and Dragons was. I never rolled any dice or anything like that, but I wanted to get to writing, and so I made this little world that people could visit and write in, and uh, so that was that was kind of my first step into creating something creative. I think the term now is like a play-by-post okay. uh, sort of role-playing game. At the time, nothing like that really existed. Interesting. Or at least that I knew about. Yeah, that's kind of where it all started. And that was while you were in high school, around that age, or was that at 12? I mean, even before then, yeah, yeah. I was 12 or 13, okay. talking wow. about, you know, dragons and, you know, <laughs> magic spells and just nonsense, you know, just just fun stuff. <laughs> and then it eventually escalated, like, while I was in high school and stuff. And got pretty big. Um, a couple hundred people were were writing in this world together, creating nonsense together, having fun. So that's wild. Do you have an archive of that or anything? Like, can oh, you yeah. see it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I've I've got a, a digital archive of it, uh, and then I also um, there was a, a a brief panic time uh, when I. Uh, so I moved eventually from Pennsylvania to Arizona, mm-hmm. um, and I was pretty broke, and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to afford to keep the website up. So 
I physically printed everything that uh, <laughs> that was written for the site and stuff like that. So I have a stack somewhere in one of the closets of thousand page document sold this yeah. old world. <laughs> that is kind of awesome, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's fun to look back at how horrible my writing was, but uh, you know, you never know where you you need to pull an old idea and you know put it into fruition somewhere else. Yeah, totally. <laughs> how do you like? Was there an like uh, for this printed version? Did you have a filing system for it? Did you have any idea oh, like no. how to find it's, something? It's a mess. It's it's a stack of papers. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. So how long did that go on? How long were people contributing to that? Like a decade. Really? Um, yeah. And I mean, we had, you know, people from all over the world. Uh, there's and people who like even if you weren't into like the role playing or writing side of things, we had people creating images of like what the astronomy of this place looked like, what planets were around and uh I didn't really have rules or you know major restrictions it was just kind of like an approval process where we had uh a small team of people who were really invested in the world and if something was cool and worked got included into the world you know uh so it was it was just like this big world building collaborative effort uh, that I had no idea what the heck I was doing and <laughs> but it was fun at the time that's learned awesome. a lot from it um uh, people being critical about your writing uh, and and learning to kind of wash that off. I, I learned at like sixteen. That, <laughs> you know, so. people may not realize how valuable of a lesson that is. Like being able to take critique because, like, right. the critique you receive is usually not presented well, right? Like, right. it's usually somebody just telling you what they don't like about what you did. So, right. so like getting that experience early on and, and learning what to do with that, that's, uh, that's, that's great. Like that, that probably set you up for this industry very early. I mean, I'm still learning. I don't think anyone's perfect at taking criticism, but, uh, yeah, it definitely prepared me a little bit, uh, better than most I'd say. Yeah, that's great. So do you, is there a, uh, a particular criticism that stands out? Do you remember something that, that was either super, ridiculous or or super helpful like any anything like that stick out well i mean we're we're talking about my writing you know 20 years ago mm -hmm. right so i mean uh at the time i used extremely flowery language um adjectives and adverbs as as often as i could right uh so that was one one criticism that someone gave me i don't remember the exact words um probably less kind than than I remember in my head but <laughs> uh, essentially tone it down right you, uh, those ad those adjectives are just getting in the way of the good stuff so yeah interesting that's cool that, that's uh that's I I really like that though just getting that kind of insight into what it's gonna be like that early had to be pretty eye-opening yeah yeah it was a good time uh, I still look back at it fondly and um I still know, like, I'm still connected to some of those people who were writing that sort of thing, and seeing uh, their lives kind of unfold, you know, in New Zealand or wherever, you know, so it's, it's been pretty awesome. Nice. That's awesome. So, all right. So let's, let's, let's kind of frame this. You, you played Final Fantasy VI. You realized this is a thing that you could do, thinking about writing at the time or the writing right. aspect of it. 
Um, it, so was writing kind of the thing that you then doubled down on uh, when you, with your studies or like, how did you kind of prepare for what you thought you might want to do now? Uh, well, once I'm, uh, so I moved to Arizona and gave up on the dream okay. um, uh, of, of becoming, you know, a part of the game industry. Uh, I was going to become a forester or something uh, through the, the college there in Flagstaff. Um, ended up doing some IT stuff, ended up doing, uh, you know, restaurant work, uh, just, just work, you know, yeah. like, uh, and then, you know, the, the voice in the back of my head kept, you know, saying, you know, maybe you should actually push for that vision, that, that, that dream, you know, the, the game writing thing. And then, you know, I was getting kind of bored of IT, uh, and then I, you know, applied to Full Sail and said, you know what, screw it, let's, Let's dive in whole hog. Let's just go for it. All right. Um, so how old were you just, when that happened? Uh, I was 23 when I actually went to Full sale. So I wasn't, uh, there was a four or five years before I realized that I should follow the old dream. Yeah. Uh, rather than just kind of get into the job force and, and do a job, yeah. you know. <laughs> Bunny Kimber in a chat says you have the beard to be a forester if, if need be. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. This is the it. pandemic beard. That's but, right. Uh... <laughs> that's great. So, uh, okay. So you're, you now have decided you're going to, you're going to figure out how to make this thing happen. And time-wise, it sounds like this is around the time that you stopped doing this online or this, this online story collaboration about 10 right. years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I stopped like eighteen, nineteen, roughly, maybe, maybe around twenty. You okay. know, that that it's so long ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I only asked because I was kind of curious if that's something that you had developed through your time at Full Sail, and I was going to ask questions about you know if that kind of impacted that. But it sounds like you you kind of got to a point where you're like, that's a thing you want to do. You found a place where you think you can go learn to kind of really do it professionally. Right. Let's go. Yeah, so. that, that that's essentially it. Um, I stopped one project and started a new one, you know, a, a degree. Yeah. No, that, that is a project for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so did you uh, do classes online? Did you move to Orlando? Which? Yeah, I did the whole online thing. Okay. Um, and that was, I mean, this was kind of in the early days of online school. You yeah. know, I graduated in 2012. Um, so it's been a little bit since I've even graduated. Um, back then, it it was kind of a brave new world as far as you know how online education kind of shakes out. Yeah. Um, so that was that was an interesting ride. Uh, one thing that an online education kind of taught me um, that I totally didn't expect, but I mean, a decade ago, who would have is uh, working from home. Yeah. Uh, and the the discipline of you know needed in order to kind of stay focused yeah. in your own home. Um, so that was. I, I don't know if I would have been able to to do the things that I did this last year and or thirty six months uh, without going to full sale online. So, man, learned, I learned a lot from doing that. I hear you. I I totally under I, and I've heard that from a few people and. Well, Renee that was on here recently said the exact same thing. And yeah. were you guys in, in class around the same time? Do, do, uh, do you we know were, each other? I think I think Renee graduated a month before me. Okay. So yeah, we were we were not 
on the same teams necessarily, but in kind of the same conversations. Yeah, yeah. You okay. know? Man, that's great. You, it's funny that that time period there was a because a lot of people don't know the the game design degree was online only at first. Like it was mm. there was not a campus program for that, so it was all online. And the program itself, obviously, you know, they were figuring it out right as they were as they were developing right. it. And some of you early people were were in a bit of the you know figuring it out mode. But uh, yeah. <laughs> but but there's a, a few of you that I talk to uh, somewhat regularly who, you know, what we'll talk about, like the things they learned from that process, you know, and, and like just learning online and learning how to learn online. And like t- this is this is our lives now. Right. Like we are online yeah. people and a lot of us work fully from our office at home and we'll continue yeah. to. So it's a, the it's days a really before nice. Zoom, too, on top of all that. Right. Right. Uh, uh, I can't even remember the software that we used. It, it must have been Skype or, yeah. or something along those lines. Um, mostly chat rooms, though. You know, like yeah. not a lot of face-to-face interaction. Uh, yeah, I know that program is is using Discord now for the you know for the you know regular chat you know that kind of stuff. Sure. And but man, you know having Zoom and that kind of stuff is like I, I always just think about how much money companies like Zoom had to have made over the last couple of years and. Because oh, everyone's yeah. using it now, right? Yeah. So that's oh, that's yeah. wild. All right. So tell us a little bit about your time in the program. So you're 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 still physically in Arizona. That's where you stayed while you were doing the, the degree. Yep. Which is now two hours earlier than Orlando, where the where the instructors are based. Right? Was there any difficulty with that, or like where you're? And about how, like, the people you worked with in class, were they around, like, or near you? Like, how was that a time difference? Uh, you know, looking back on it, yeah, there there, there certainly was sort of a, a, a time disconnect. Um, but I think the way that the, the program was structured, it didn't really impact me so heavily because it was, it wasn't quite a forum in, in how we interacted, but for something very forum-like, um. So when you would post something uh, or make a comment on something or interact with someone else, you wouldn't immediately expect a response. It was, you know, I'm going to come back to this a few hours later. Something. Gotcha. And so it, it felt a little bit different. Um, but, yeah, I kind of more or less when, when I wasn't – at the time I was bartending, um, yeah. which is a great job to have while you're going to school. And I, um, because you make your own hours. You you can make it work within a, a, a college schedule. Um, uh, and if you get a job at a, at a decent bar, you could actually make some, some decent money. You know, that's not the easiest thing to do while you go to school. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was just kind of like, I made my own schedule, so that made it really easy for me. Um, I was able to kind of buckle down and hop online whenever I needed to. And I was, I was essentially glued to the PC. I mean, I don't think anything's really changed from, from then to now, honestly, but, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't think of anything too major that affected me being, uh, so far away, uh, time-wise. That's good. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause you know, the, the university has people all over the world now, you know, so sometimes you, mm-hmm. you might have a partner that's in a completely different country, you know, several time zones away. And I'm sure that is 
quite an interesting problem to deal with and, and kind of work through as someone with, you know, any kind of collaboration that's needed. So, yeah. Uh, I'm always curious uh, to hear about I, that. I experienced that a little bit with uh, the first game job that I had, but that's, that's a few years ahead. I don't know how, how, uh, how we're skipping <laughs> along or, you know, but, yeah, we... <laughs> there's no real format. I, t I, t okay. I tend to kind of keep it as, you know, like a, a linear thing, but we pop around it. Does, anytime you think of like, oh, I want to talk about this, feel free, feel free. So. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so the, the first job out of school um, was an indie project. Um, we were working on a game called Novus, which mm -hmm. was kind of uh, Terraria-like, um, except uh, there was some base building and defense mechanisms in the game. Um, and our team was all over the place. Um, at the time, I had moved to Austin, Texas, kind of make, you know, to be a part of a group, there was no game development happening in Flagstaff, Arizona at the time. So I wanted right. to be somewhere where that was happening. Um, but we had uh, our lead programmer, uh, who was one of the programmers on uh, the original Rampage of, of all games. What? Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, he he lived in Hawaii, um, and uh, we had another programmer in Hawaii. We had uh, uh, another one in uh, South America. Our our lead artist was in UK, so we were we were scattered all over the place. Um, but you know that once you figure out a schedule that works for everybody, you know some compromises have to be made. Sometimes you got to hop on it five in the morning to make sure everyone's connected. But yeah. you know, once you figure that out, uh, it's not the end of the world. It's just maybe fixing your sleep schedule a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Game development takes sometimes uh, some being flexible, right? Like right. Uh, as far as when you work, how you work, who you work with, how you collaborate, like every project, every team, every it's always different. And it, so that's why I tell people what you're, what you're really learning with your education is you're learning how to learn and you're learning how to work with others. Right. And those, if you can nail those two things down, the rest of it, you can figure out. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And full sale, uh, also like was just the launching point for like learning the software. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, uh, at the time there was just a, just jumping into Unreal sound sounded like such a scary prospect, but uh, once you get into it, like no, no, this is this isn't the end of the world. You, you can make this work. You can make a thing pretty. You know? Yeah, right. It's just the digital tool set, right? Like, it, right. <laughs> it just makes a lot of those things easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I want to back up just a little bit because I think the thing we didn't quite make clear is you went through the game design program at Full Sail. Yeah. Yep. And then, so your goal was to make video games, right? And that's what you're learning. Now, oh, yeah. your first job, was that a video game job or was that a board game job? Yep. Uh, the first job uh, was the indie project. Um, okay. And had it not been for me going to Full Sail and networking with people there, um, that that job never would have happened. Uh, uh Another student that I, I, I was uh, in the program with, Kirby, um, knew that I loved writing uh, and knew that they needed a writer. And that's basically how it happened. Uh. Uh, and, you know, eventually I would, I, I would get more involved in the game design process. But initially I was writing dialogue, writing, you know, 
blurbs that would pop up for, you know, items and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So I'm curious, they have a creative writing program now. Do you think you would have done that instead if you'd had that option over game design? I don't know. Um, that's a good question. Uh, if I were to visit, like, if I knew everything I knew, I know now, probably not. Mm -hmm. Um, but 19 year old Kyle, probably, um, I find that I like to mix writing and design, uh, more than just writing itself. Um, you know, like it, as much as on on what, like I have a bucket list of you know creative projects I want to work on before I die, uh, and one yeah. of them is a book, one's another uh, like a comic I'd love to write, but that's not where I really fall into ultimate interests. If okay. that makes sense, yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's a uh, meshing meshing the story and the mechanics uh, of a game. That's so, uh, that's great because that is not an easy thing to do, right? Like. like yeah. So it's good yeah. that that you you know people focus on that you know and care about mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Uh, Vagrant Song is a. a I, I guess we'll get it. I'm jumping all over the place, that's but okay. that, that's one <laughs> one particular instance where uh, I really pushed for that heavily, making sure that every every mechanic had a, a reason behind it, a theme behind it. You know, the a narrative blip that someone could have a water cooler moment. So that's great. Now, do you feel like, and because that's your latest game, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, so that's my baby. Yeah. Do you <laughs> feel then that, that what you learned over the time kind of got you to the, to feeling that way about it and, and making that a practice? Uh, so it, it's an interesting, I, I don't know exactly how I got there. Um, if I'm going to be honest with you, it's just kind of a, a culmination of things that I was interested in and things that I liked in other games and, aspects I wanted to push further. Um, when I started at Weird uh, as a designer, I was basically kind of a bouncing board, but also an editor, because a lot of our stuff is very text-heavy. We have a lot of stories to our games, and you know, rule books needed to be edited. It's a very different uh, facet uh, than you know, video game design in that regard. So that, that's kind of where I dipped in first. Um, but yeah, ultimately just the things that I find interested in are, are, are the, uh, the stories that are driven by mechanics The you know, I don't want to just do a thing in a game that doesn't have any connective through line, any deeper meaning anymore. I guess that's where their Vagrant Songs mechanics kind of came to be. Nice. That's really cool. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny. I, I, I often think about how I would have approached a project if it would have been in a different part of my career, mm. you know, like, cause I, when you talk about that, I'm like, I feel like that's something you probably learned at least a bit along the way, the importance of that and that you cared about that. Cause you said it's your baby, right? Like, so that's a, you, you've got a lot of like your passion involved in, in that project. So it's always fun to me to think, well, you know, what if I'd been presented with that opportunity at the beginning of my career, how would I have approached that differently? You know, it's fun to think about if nothing else. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't ever considered that. Um, but yeah, um, that's going to be an interesting thought exercise after this is over. <laughs> nice dwelling over <laughs> what Vagrant Song would have looked like, at, you know, five years prior to actually working on it. 
I mean, <laughs> probably it would have been worse, right? Because I we oh, hope yeah. that we get better over time. You know, we make right. better decisions. And <laughs> but I often think about like the I think about it the other way. I'm like, hey, if I were working on Stranger's Wrath today, well, and the things that I worked on, mm-hmm. what would I've done different? And there's like just like a hundred things where I'm like, oh, I would have done this better. I would have done that. Like, and it's just it's always fun to think about. I got too much time in my own head. So I use it for things like that. <laughs> yeah, it might have been like a competitive card game or something right. at the time instead. So <laughs> Yeah. So let's let's bounce back to your first game job a little bit. So you said uh, your team was all over the place. You got the job through networking, which is a very common thing that we talk about in here on this show for sure. Um so what uh what were you working on there and, and what was your role? You know, coming out, you know, game design degree coming out, you're thinking, you know, writing is what you care a lot about. And so what were you kind of focusing on there? Uh, so strangely enough, this is kind of a, a a thing that's happened a few times in my career already is uh, I'm. I, I was given the role uh, a writer at the time when they were pivoting uh, pretty heavily from mm. uh, what they were making to what they wanted uh i don't there the certain story elements weren't working uh and it was basically my task uh alongside the lead designer to kind of figure out what we were going to move forward um so that was the initial project which is uh a fairly significant hurdle like okay here's what we've got here's what still works what can we do to kind of make this game shine in a unique way? um so that was that was the first goal figuring out what sort of story we were trying to tell in the game. Um, and then beyond that, it was, you know, uh, iteration with uh, item descriptions, dialogue with the characters, uh, theming of various things, uh, and that sort of thing. Um, and then later, I would get looped into um, the actual development uh, of balancing this gun's damage, you mm-hmm. know, and that sort of thing. Uh, how... Because it was a Terraria-like game, so how many minerals do you need to craft X? You know, and that sort of thing. Um, that ended up becoming more and more of my job as the the writing became less and less intense uh, mm-hmm. as as the game as as you play it, right? So you want you want to be introduced to the story of the game, and then you kind of want to just explore it. Um, so um, we kind of designed the game from you know beginning to end, which from what I hear is not what you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, <laughs> it's just what we did at the time. Uh, a lot of us were still learning, you know, we, a lot of us were fresh out of college or, you know, it was our first game project. Uh, there were a handful of experienced developers that were, you know, probably ripping their hair out at the time. <laughs> <laughs> how, how big was the design team? Uh, we're, we're talking at the smallest, or the design team itself was essentially me and one other person. Okay. Um, the whole team was probably at maximum, maybe 12 people. Okay. Um, which was fairly large, uh, considering the project, but, um, still never enough people. Right. I mean, that's always, always the case. Wanna... <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, did you guys finish that game? No, that one uh, unfortunately uh, took the avenue that many indie startups did. Uh, we just kind of ran out of. Fun. 
Um, it was in development for about two years. I was a part of the project for about a year of that. Um, and yeah, the, the well ran dry, fortunately. Yeah, that's, man, a lot of people don't realize that that's probably 90% of stories with, with indies oh, yeah. and startups, man. It's, it's tough out there. Like, yeah, it can, yeah. passion projects often <laughs> don't make it far enough to get the, uh, the rest of the world passionate about it with you. And it's unfortunate because there's some great stuff that got left on the cutting room floor. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, that was, I mean, it was a good learning point in my life you know <laughs> um thinking we were invincible making this game uh and then you know reality with it with its hammer yeah <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do like so well first of all how much warning did you have or was it just like a well we're out of money time to find something else which it happens as well <laughs> there was a mood you know near the end yeah this general feeling um, that things weren't going to shape out the way that we had always hoped. Um, but we kept working on it anyway, because, you know, passion is what wakes us up in the morning. You yeah. Know? Um, so yeah, there were, there was a general feeling, uh, near the end that we just, and when it happened, it wasn't really a surprise. Um, so yeah, it, it, it was fairly sudden when it happened. Um, but you were but, not surprised. Yeah. That, that makes total yeah. sense. It's funny. I, I've been through that a few times. I know that mood very well. I know exactly what you're talking about because right. what tends to happen is somebody will hear something and their demeanor will change. And it's, you know, like, and it just kind of starts this, like you just feel it, you feel yeah. it. And even if no one's talking about it, you feel it. And it's, it's, uh, I kind of feel like, you haven't really been in game development unless you've had that experience because it is a very unique one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't argue that. Um, yeah. Uh, just like uh, I, I say, everyone needs to work in the restaurant industry for a little bit to, to learn how to speak <laughs> to other people. Right. Uh, and if you're in the game industry, yeah, that that's, that's probably one thing that everyone should experience is that, uh, that enormous cutting failure <laughs> to, <laughs> my, to, to learn how to cope with it. Right. Because it, 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 it is going to happen at some point. Probably. It was but my very was, first job too, actually. Now that I think about yeah. it, that was where I, the first time that I had it and it was not fun, not fun at all. Yeah. Uh, so after that, I got stuck in the catch 22 of, I can't get a job without experience, but I, I need experience to get a job. Uh, without a release title, you know, that, that ends up ah, becoming yeah. such a, an important part of getting hired. So I ended up doing, uh, some QA for a while, um, for, you know, some, some, uh, mobile apps, um, try to get experience that way, take that Avenue. Um, and then about a year later on a whim, I applied to work in the board game industry at this company called weird games. And they took a chance on me and, Five years later, here I am, their design lead. So Wow. That's uh, uh what what got you thinking that way? Were you always a big board game person? Like what what no. uh no? <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> uh no, I mean I I had played board games. Um I had unintentionally written an RPG when I was a kid. <laughs> right. Um, but I never played 
Like, I mean, I, not never, but I never like played a year-long campaign of D and D or something like that. I, I would pick up a Pathfinder source book and dabble in it. I would, you know, check these things out and uh, experience them very quickly, you know. Uh, and board games in a very similar vein. Um, I, it was just I, I took a risk, um, and it ended up working out great because. This is a, a gaming space that I did, I really love, um, and I've learned so much in working in this. Then uh, I don't know. It's just there. There are so many differences in designing a tabletop game than designing a board game or designing a digital game, I should say. Yeah. Uh, so. But there's also a lot of similarities, right? Like, oh, sure, sure. Like yeah, even, uh, even now, as you go through the education, it's full sale for sure, and I'm sure others, like, some of the early stuff you learn is board game design because it's very, you know, it's it, it's 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 rules and, and how you interact with those rules, right? And how rules right. interact with each other. And that's all the same kind of foundational knowledge for game design. It's just presented, or for video games, it's just presented in a different way. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I don't know if the, the class still exists, um, but there was one when I was there uh, called Paper Prototyping, mm. um, where we would essentially take deconstruct a game, uh, a video game, and turn it into a tabletop game. And uh, At the time, I chose NBA Jam. Oh. <laughs> Try to break that down nice. to a board game. And it was a mess, but uh, looking back on it, but it was a lot of fun of, of a project. And looking, like, the fundamentals I learned in that class are probably the things that I hold on to the most in in uh, working in tabletop. But um, do yeah, you happen like you to said, remember who the teacher of that class was? I want to say it was Zach Highwiller. I figured it was. <laughs> That's what I wondered. Yeah, yeah. He, uh, he is such a he has such a great board game mind. Like he's he's really good at at that kind of thing. So like that's. Not surprising. Not surprising. Yeah, he he's he's one of the names that really stick out in memory as one of the top instructors. Oh, that's great. Which I, I don't I don't believe he's there anymore, but I could be wrong. He just recently left. He's working on the mm-hmm. uh, Knockout City uh, dodgeball game. He's their lead designer oh, okay. now. Yeah, right on. Just just I a few months that. ago. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So he's uh, apparently. I assume that's going well. Uh, but yeah, he went <laughs> off to do that very recently. So. Good dude. Like he's he's a very very solid, especially board game mind. And that was the thing that he and I connected on when I was working over there the last few years. Uh, we would play games together, talk about games, that kind of thing. Any game I would mention, he would know it, and he would not only know it, but he would know it. You know what I mean? Like, and that was a uh, so that was uh, easily a guy I would go to about any of that kind of stuff very quickly. I think I'm that guy these days yeah. with uh, my friend group. Yeah. And five years ago, you could have mentioned, you know, tapestry or something like that. And I would have had no clue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just, it's, it's a deep world. The, the tabletop industry. It's Lots. in its Renaissance right now. Right. Like right. there is like, especially I got really like, I've always loved board games. I, I grew up, it was a big thing around my family uh, we would always play board games and games of card games, stuff like that. Um, but I really, really got into it when I was at Volition, probably around 2010. So about, you know, about a little over a decade ago. 
when when we really started to see stuff coming up, like you know, like house trailer house on the hill, and yeah. you know, like stuff that's that's really taking the genres and just making them so different. And fantasy flight stuff, like you put pretty much any fantasy flight thing in front of me, and I'm gonna love it. And it's just <laughs> there's just so much stuff like and just get you thinking about very deep levels of interaction and stuff that's built in a paper form that I could hold in my hand and. And you can teach to anybody, right? There's a, there's a much lower barrier of entry, I think, in board games than there is in a video game for someone that's not familiar with either. Yes and no. Um, I, I would agree with that to a certain extent, especially if the uh, the hang-up is, you know, the the physicality of a controller or something yeah. like that. Um, the difference, I would say, is that you could give a, a player a controller and let them... and tell them not anything about uh, uh, like Mega Man X, for example, was one of the, the games I looked at a lot when I was uh, learning, like uh, how to teach a player how to play. Yeah. Uh, you could give the player a controller in Mega Man X and not tell them a thing on how to play, but there's a block ahead and there's a thing on top of the block. You get the impression immediately that you're going to need to jump to get to that object. Right. You're going to fiddle around with the controller, and it's going to be A or B to to jump up on there, and you'll learn that. Um, and then, the, you know, the next little micro puzzle to teach you the, the, how to run, for example, and then jump across and that sort of thing. And in a video game, they, they you can create those tutorials without tutorials. You can create those uh, walls to bounce off of. And in a board game... It's a little different. You do have to understand the fundamentals of the rules um, based on the, you know, deepness of the game. You might be spending an hour trying to understand the thing before you can even play it. Yeah, um, that's true. So there, there is that. Um, but ultimately, if you have got a like a like a buddy who's already familiar with the game, uh, yeah, you're gonna have the a very similar experience. Yeah, and I think the part that 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 I was kind of thinking about is, is the people I grew up with, like my family and people around me that have no understanding of video games, right. And no desire to play video games. Sure. And I think you can get a very rich, deep board game experience now that we didn't have, you know, we played growing up, we played monopoly risk rook, you know, like, like simple ish yep. stuff, but, and, and a lot of like, random right like like random dice rolls for things which is a ter like a terrible way to do a lot of things but uh you know it's just like that's that was their comfort level with things and i think taking that and moving them into like hey here's here's something you got to think about i love to play love letter with my family i don't know if you've ever played okay. love letter yeah uh, just because it's i think it's, it's a very simple game for those that haven't played it it's a very simple card game but there's a lot of strategy involved right and the second that you understand probability and you're you know you're weaving in like how you, how you know this other player and the kind of things they might do. And like, it's, it's just really nice to get people thinking on a different level instead of like, what's the game presenting to me instead. This is what, what am I going to, you know, what, how am I going to interact with this game? Okay. So in that regard, I would agree with you. Uh, yeah. So if you're sitting down with, you know, your, your folks or um, one instance in particular, I could think of uh, my, my wife's uh, parents, uh, we had sat down and played a game of the mind. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but I've heard of a, it. I haven't played it yet. It's a really tiny uh, card game. It's a quiet game. No one can speak. And all you're trying to do is play cards in order uh, into a pile. Uh, 
everyone has a set of cards in their hand, you don't know who has what, and you're trying to play them in order, and if someone plays a card out of order, and like, let's say I played a nine, and but you had a seven, right? Then it, uh, we just lost a point. Uh, it goes up into like a hundred, right? Right. I did play 100. this once. I'm sorry, I played this once yeah. uh, through Tabletop Simulator on stream, actually. I, I didn't, yeah. I forgot that that's what it was. But sorry, go on. You're, you're, that's a very cool concept. Uh, well, I mean, and it's ultra simple, right? So you teach that to someone in two seconds, you show them how the game functions, and then anyone could play that. Um, so in that regard, yeah, I would absolutely agree with you that um, the, the level of accessibility in board games is uh, a little bit easier. Because those, certain, uh, those certain elements don't feel quite as foreign uh, or scary. You know, yeah. picking up a controller and what's what's left bumper you know right, like, right. those sorts of that <laughs> uh, doesn't quite happen uh, and that eventually led us into uh teaching them how to play pandemic um which once you get into the the i mean it it feels like a daunting game when you first see it but comparatively to the rest of the board game industry it's fairly straightforward um yeah so yeah it was a good jumping off point uh well, I'm, so, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Pandemic because that is a cooperative game, right? Which is something yeah. that I think is what blew this thing wide open for the board game industry, right? Like you now have people that can, it becomes more accessible because now I'm not playing against you. I'm joining you in this adventure. And that, that is a huge, huge thing, I think. Oh, yeah. Um I mean, it it just makes me think of like all of the different uh, types of players, um, and there are so many board game players these days that just won't touch a competitive game because they don't want that level of agitation against yeah. you know your your friend. Or uh, in board games, there's you know secret trader mechanics, and they don't or you know lying as a mechanic, mm -hmm. uh, and some people take that sort of element a little too seriously um or maybe someone's just really really good at it and you might see your friend in a different light for the rest yeah. of your life <laughs> um but yeah being able to be uh, you know in a cooperative space uh the pressure's off right um the the, the different type of pressure at that point is the alpha gamer um yeah. the one uh, the one guy who's leading the charge and telling you what to do those are it's a different obstacle and different problem to solve. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and it, it's funny because I, I like that you mentioned that you might see somebody in a different light because there's been a couple of times where a friend straight up looked me in the eye and lied to me in a board game, right? Because that's what the game is, you know? Right. And me knowing them did not as assume that's what was happening. And then later I was like, man, I have to rethink my, you know, I have to rethink some things, right? Because you cannot let, you have to have that separation, right? Like you have to be able to, this is the game. This is what we're doing. And then yeah. after this game, I'm back to my normal self. Right. And that's, that, that's a big <laughs> thing. Like you cannot expect someone is going to be who they are at all times when, when having any kind of competitive experience. Yeah. And unfortunately some people can't shake that. Um, th that's, you know, from my experience, kind of the minority of uh, of players, most people can you know walk away and realize that that lie was just all in. Um, yeah. But for for those players, cooperative games are are there. Yeah. Or even solo games is kind of the new thing, uh, which 
if you had asked me five years ago what would be the the next big thing and you mentioned solo games i would i would not agree with you at all but that seems to be the thing right? i agree i wonder how much the pandemic has impacted that as well right where especially right. you know early last year it you know it, it's funny i um i was in a place where i was really big into board games i've got a, a pretty big collection now and then I moved down here at the end of 2016. And so across, I think that's right. Anyway, for, for the next couple of years, that was, you know, I, I have a new board game table. I'm bringing people over, you know, we're doing stuff maybe, you know, a few times a year, just trying to kind of like keep that, you know, get a new group going, that kind of thing. And then suddenly I can't see anyone, right? Yeah. Or, or at, least, at the very least, it makes me nervous to see people, right? And so... And then I've got all these things that I that I built and I was building this like ability to have groups of people and enjoy these things together. And now suddenly I can't do that. Right. So do was it um do you feel like we were leaning it toward that already? Do you feel like it was it kind of came out of that? Like what do you what do you think? I think the explosion is uh of solo games um can I guess take credit uh, or Thanks to the pandemic, weird that is to say. Um, before that, there were some solo games that were coming out uh, that were kind of scratching that itch before uh, the pandemic. Um, mostly like small puzzle, like uh, war sims, sort mm -hmm. of stuff like that. Um, since since the pandemic, though, I, I, I'd agree with you that it was the. Th the the jumping off point um it's just it, it's still t so weird to me um and i'm not disparaging solo games at all uh there there, there are plenty out there there's one that i really want to play is uh final girl uh, which is like a horror slasher flick sort of solo game um did you say final girl yeah that's the name of it um uh totally worth checking out it's this. like this yeah it was kickstarted one of the a huge kickstarter explosion games um Good but reviews. it's like an episodic sort of thing uh, where you play as like the you, you're running away from the equivalent of Michael Myers and you have to ah. go get the axe and or whatever. I haven't played it, so I'm, I'm giving uh, a poor description of it. Um, it looks like it's a purely it, solo game, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I haven't seen that yet. OK, that's my first only solo game that I've seen. OK, right. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess that's another thing. Like co cooperative games have also. Um, helped create solo experiences too because mm. even before the pandemic getting a group together wasn't always the easiest thing in the world yeah um, so that shiny new hundred dollar game you wanted to hit the table you want to see and experience it so um in a lot of ways you were able to experience them by yourself um, yeah. as long as you could manage it all right um I forgot what we were going off. Of. Uh, solo games. Solo games. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just so you know, I love the the uh, just let's talk about whatever comes to mind aspect of this podcast. <laughs> so so never feel like you need to like be like, oh wait, what was I what was I trying to get to? Like, it's all good. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, the big uh, thing that I've been looking at over the last few years, especially as I met my wife, you know, five years ago, is is two player games yeah. and like lost cities, I think is a fantastic example of that. Something that's pretty easy yeah. to pick up and learn and teach people. But I think having something I, I, it's, it also depends on your partner, right? Like 
pandemic she loves because we're playing together. We're trying to beat the game together. But then some kind of like, I don't think she and I have played that Seven Wonders dual game yet. But that is also an excellent kind of two-player adversarial mm. thing. Yeah, that's kind of where my collection is is slowly shaping into. Uh, can it be played two players comfortably and well? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's co-op or competitive, but something I could play with my wife without having to deal with... I, I say deal with, but like getting a group together is a lot of fun. Yeah, but it's also yeah. a bit of a headache, right? Mm -hmm. uh, trying to get four or five people in the same room isn't the easiest thing in the world. But yeah, uh, yeah, those types of games, the two-player games, uh, they could be huge. Uh, right now, the... But I'm really leaning into the smaller ones, the the really quick, tight, uh, twenty thirty minute experiences. Yeah. Uh, Airland and Sea is a really tiny card game um, that I love. Time Barons is another one. Time uh, Barons, what's that about? Uh, Time Barons is actually um, it's co-designed by uh, one of the designers of Spelunky. Oh. Um, um, but it's it's. I, I want to say it's Magic the Gathering adjacent because if you've played Magic the Gathering, you're it's not going to feel like unknown territory. Um, but it's got a little bit of a drafting, deck building sort of mechanic going on, and you're going to be putting some resources on your cards. But essentially, you're duking it out against your opponent with uh, uh, a, a set of cards that you're. It's a communal thing. Okay. So you're not going in with like a sixty card deck, like or something like that, but. You're trying to beat your opponent up. Gotcha. Yeah, I feel like it, game, any kind of a card type game needs to either have, it needs to either be deck building, right? Give me something small to start with, and then, you know, I can mm -hmm. build that deck over the time as we play, or it needs to be pre constructed, right? If you want to get yeah. people in, like nobody that's coming to a new game has any idea how to build a deck for it, right? When they're first starting, like they need something to give them a I mean, that I've, entry. I've been playing Magic for, umpteenth years and i still don't know how to build a deck well you Dude, know like i still I'm have the to same. look up guides <laughs> i'm the same so i was i've been playing uh arena and had a couple of decks that i really liked and then some of those cards went out of cert, out of rotation and the decks aren't good anymore so i quit playing i'm like i just i don't i don't have the energy to learn how to build a new deck in this cycle like i just don't so i haven't right. played in in like a year now <laughs> yeah and that's my problem with magic i never end up uh, when I do build up uh, my own decks, they're never competitive. It's always like this, this crazy theme or you know this machine that I'm trying to build that might trigger one percent. And <laughs> but those are those are fun. Um, it's it's just you can't climb the ladder with those sorts of decks. Right. You've got to have the right <laughs> opponent. Things have got to go your way. Yeah. Right. But they're fun. It's like a Frankenstein where you're like, you know, can I put together something that will do something really neat? And then, uh, and then a new cycle comes out, and half your cards are no longer valid, and you stop doing it. So, <laughs> at least that's what I do. <laughs> so, I want to back up and and talk a little bit about what you were working on because now you've you, you had this company take a chance on you after a year of you know working in video games and you know game design education. I'm curious. Do you remember? Or have they told you kind of what sold them on you? Like, like, how did you present yourself and how did you make yourself look like someone that would be good for this job? You know, I probably should ask them that. It'd be good <laughs> but, to know uh, if, if anybody remembers, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I do remember. Um, so 
I, I'm sure everyone has experienced this where you, you, you've applied for a job, you go through the interview process and you still get declined and they'll tell you that they'll keep your name yeah. on file. Right. Right. Um, which is a nice way of saying apply again if you're ever interested. Um, Not always, because, but, but, right. I, but I'm with you. I'm with you. <laughs> right. And that's essentially what I was getting at. This was the exception to that. Um, they did keep my name on file. The first time I applied, um, someone else got the gig. And a few months later, they were like, you know, we need to expand even more. We need to get another person in. And lo and behold, you know, second place ended up uh, coming aboard. So. Yeah. That's... <laughs> so it does happen. It does. That, that is almost exactly what happened to uh, uh, Will Fitzgerald, who's been on the stream many times with Volition. Like we had, we were hiring a couple of people. They're like, wait, we can only do one. They They ended up picking someone else at first. And then I called him like a month or two later. I was like, dude. Another spot, it's yours. Like, how soon can you get here? Like, so that sometimes that happens. Um, come to think of it, it might have been because I had a different perspective with the education, um, with my background in video games. Um, that was something that the lead designer at the time seemed to really value, mm. uh, which is something to value to begin with, I guess. Um, you know, you want as many perspectives on a game as you can. Um, and I had no experience really making a board game or anything like that. So maybe that's what he saw. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, it's, I'm just always curious, right? Like what makes, what makes a company take a chance on someone? What do they see in them? You know, yes. I don't think we hear that often enough. Right. And, uh, and sometimes it's just a feeling, right? Sometimes it's a vibe, Sometimes it's a like, oh, they seem to know a lot about this one particular thing. And then when you're like, oh, we need someone that knows that thing, then then you're thought of, right? Like it, it can be that simple too. Yeah. No, I mean, when I get back in January, I'm going to have to ask them. <laughs> you um, should <laughs> let me know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so as you, uh, as you jumped onto the team, what, uh, did you know what project you were going to work on or was the interview kind of a blind thing? It was all about skills and, and, you know, general aptitude. Uh, yeah, I mean, there, there were some like game specific tests, uh, aspects like design a character in this game and that sort of thing. And to be honest with you, I didn't really know these games, uh, in and out. Um, I wasn't a master of, uh, Malifaux, which is their flagship game. Uh, I had played it. Um, I had, I played it really from an educational standpoint first, like, okay, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested in this company. This is their, their main game. I, I should probably learn how to play it before I had apply. Um, but yeah, that wasn't really a space that I was super familiar with. Um, for the first job though, uh, when I got on was, uh, they were uh, ramping up the, Frame freeze, or is that just on me? Uh, I think it's just you. I hope it's just you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, sorry. Uh, so the the first project that I started on was um, they were just kickstarting, or just wrapped up the kickstarting of their large scale war game, The Other Side. Mm. Um, the name comes from uh, so essentially Malifaux is this alternate universe that we ended up finding. Um, there was a portal in Santa Fe. And it was this other world. But the other side is on Earth, where all this dark magic and weirdness starts 
seeping through over time. Um, so Malifaux has been this game that's been out for about you know, 10, 15 years now, and the other side is uh, our attempt of uh, making a large-scale game, because Malifaux is, you know, 8 to 10 models, 8 to 10 characters. Um, and if you're familiar with Warhammer, the other side is more of that scale, only it's oh. uh, a little faster, uh, a little bit more streamlined than Malifaux. Malifaux's uh, pretty crunchy when when it comes to, like, decision-making, gotcha. depth of characters and all that sort of stuff, so... yeah. Um, I started working on the stories. We 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 launched uh, with our minis games. We do uh, books of you know, many lore entries, and we dive into the the, the the character backgrounds and that sort of stuff. Um, so that was that was the very first thing. Is you're gonna dive into characters that you're not familiar with, and good luck. <laughs> um, but yeah, those those stories somehow turned out okay. I think. I hope. <laughs> somehow. <laughs> right. <laughs> How long were you working on that? Uh, not too long. We were in the like the the, the final stages already. It, it they essentially needed editing passes and that okay. sort of. Um, so it wasn't that we were trying to figure out what the story was. It was, does this line of dialogue work? Does this sound like a thing this character would say? Does this section make sense, or does it ruin the pacing and that sort of thing? It was, it it was. We were already into the thick of it by the time I was uh, uh, brought on board. I think that's a good time to join a company personally because it's a, uh, it's way less stress on you from a creative standpoint, right? Like right. you can come in and quickly show what you're capable of because you can get your hands dirty right away. And, you know, put your spin on things, do whatever you need. But ultimately, people know what the work is for the most part, and you help and come in and help close it out, right? Let's get it done. That's a really good time to shine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, hopefully, people like the book. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's funny. So tell us a little bit about like how it's structured. Like if for someone that wanted to, and we're, we're we're talking about the other side right now, right? Is that correct? Or am I? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, I mean, we could, we could jump around. <laughs> well, I I guess uh, so. I want to talk a little bit about. Let's talk about Malifaux first. So you sure. said that had been in development for a long time before you joined, right? Right. So okay. when I joined the, uh, I I wasn't even working on Malifaux at the time, uh, and it would be some time before I even dipped my toes into the into the, the bread and butter uh, game of this company. Um, they had just published or were in the process of publishing the, the last book of their second edition of Malifaux. Um, and I wouldn't actually get my hands on it until third edition, which was Essentially, what we were what they were working on next anyway. They wanted to revamp some systems and clear up some stuff. Um, so that's when I started getting into it. Um, started doing the the story stuff, and they went huge with the stories. Rather than <laughs> one book with you know three to five stories, we did seven books with twenty one stories. Wow. Um, so yeah, that was an enormous project. Um, uh, I think like three hundred thousand words or something ridiculous like that. Um, wow! Luckily, we had, you know, I wasn't the one writing the stuff. Um, I was just kind of wrangling the writers and making sure that it was all uh, cohesive. Um, 
and then eventually uh once you know some roles started changing people started leaving coming and going i, I uh got my shot at um kind of getting into the nitty-gritty nitty of Malifaux. Um, and then, yeah, third edition launched, and people liked it. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> so tell, tell me how, how the third edition launches, because I went, I went and looked at the website a little bit and at the store just to kind of see. And there's a lot of stuff, right? So Oh, yeah. So how does someone start? Is there like a, a base set, and then you add on expansions? Like kind of how, how is it structured overall? Okay, so brand new person, probably not super familiar with tabletop skirmish games. Um, Malifaux is one of the easiest games to get into, um, but it's also one of the deepest games to play. Um, so just bear that in mind. It's not like a beer and pretzels kind of game. You you are you are getting into the thick of it as far as mechanics go. But playing the game is fairly simple. So I don't want to scare anybody off. Um, it's not like Warhammer. You don't have to spend four to twelve hundred dollars to get your army. I've done that, um, <laughs> right? Yeah, and I mean, those numbers aren't even like abstractions, right? I mean, you could probably think like the exact number that <laughs> yeah. You've spent. I spent like two grand easy on that game. Like <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Malifaux is not an army scale game. You need eight to ten characters. Um, so you could do it as little as buying a core box which is about, you know, anywhere between 45 to 60 bucks, and then a supplement box to kind of fill out the crew, and a deck of cards, and you're done. Um, which, by the way, we don't use dice. We use a deck of cards um, to, to manage, you know, randomness and successes and failures and stuff like that. Um, and it's a traditional deck of cards, so you could even just pull out the uh, the bicycle deck in your, your drawer and use that. Um, but we have unique suits, so um, there, there's just a bit of a translation. That ah. Um, but the rules are online for free. We have this amazing app that you can download for free that has all of the stat cards, um, all of the conditions to track and stuff like that. Um, so it's actually fairly breezy to get into it. Um, it's just a matter of... Even if you don't want to dive into the nitty-gritty of the rules, because, you know, a rule book for a tabletop skirmish game that's ultra-competitive like this does get fairly nuanced. Um, and it, reading it might feel like you're reading some tax forms or something like that. You know, you, <laughs> you're, you're, you're getting into something deep. Uh, but you can also just watch a YouTube video, watch how card flips work, um, watch how movement is measured, that sort of thing. It's not as scary as it looks. Um, that's what I would suggest if you're going to get going. Um, you could also take the ultra easy route. We have we've got starter boxes, um, and they're going to help you with starting off with some characters. They're going to come with the measuring widget, uh, a deck of cards, and characters that are going to work in um, one of eight factions. Um, we have eight factions in the game, 54 masters. Excuse me. So there's a lot of play styles. Uh, masters are like the leaders in the game. Um, if if I if I say anything that sounds confusing, just stop me because sometimes oh, I, I get ahead you. of myself. No, no, I'm with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah, lots of play styles and sort of, sort of things. So you just kind of look at uh, go go to the weird website, I guess, and and look at all the masters and look at one that is the most aesthetically pleasing. Uh, uh, a lot of tabletop gamers will will go by what's called the rule of cool, whatever looks cool to you. Yeah. 
dive into that, right? Um, I am a big fan of it. That's why I picked Wood Elves when I played Fantasy. I was like, that looks the coolest to sure. me. That's what I'm going to roll with. And that, I, I get it. <laughs> what What is your favorite? Like, what do you like to play with? Uh, so right here, I've got one crew. Uh, this is uh, Euripides here. Uh, he is an ice giant. Uh, don't mind my shoddy painting. I, I make rules. I don't paint professionally. <laughs> oh, I hear you. Being colorblind, that's the one thing that I never, ever did well. So, <laughs> um, But yeah, that's that's probably my favorite crew. Uh, um, they, they're part of the Neverborn faction, which are kind of the monsters in the game. Um, and these guys are coming down from these icy mountains because bad things are happening, shaking things up, and it's time for them to be a part of the world again after, you know, 10,000 years or so. Um, so they, the Neverborn's weakness generally is ranged stuff. They, they aren't great at ranged. So how this crew kind of started uh, from the design perspective uh, is we wanted ranged Neverborn. Uh, that's why some of the characters, let's see if I could find one. Some of them are holding these big, nasty boulders. They just chuck boulders. That's, that's kind of their thing. Interesting. Um, but that that's kind of just where the basics started. They they deal with uh, ice pillars. They put up ice pillars. They manipulate those in the board. Sometimes they those pillars get in the way of your opponent. Sometimes they could kind of adjust line of sight for you. You could teleport. You know, they, they do all sorts of neat things. Uh, so, yeah. That's that's my preferred crew. Um, you know, anyone who's playing Malifaux uh, and and watching right now, I I love all of them. I love all the crews equally. <laughs> there you so. go. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> so, as someone who like I look at this and I'm interested because you know it's I, I like I said I, I did a lot of Warhammer. I loved Warhammer. It was very expensive. Um, and I didn't like that part of it. So yeah, if, is there a starter set where you're like, Hey, just go get this. And you've got the basic things you need to learn the game and you could play at any time. Like, is there something like that? Or is it like a combination of things you need? So the game is too large to, to do a starter in like the older traditional way of thinking about it um, mm -hmm. where, you know, you might buy uh, back in the day, you might buy a two player starter set. It's going to have, you know, these two crews in it. Yep. And um, basically my train of thought is that it's a little isolating because Malifaux is this melting pot of themes. Like we have Bayou Gremlins right next to, you know, Arcanists who set things aflame. Um, very, very different. Uh, or, you know, the authoritarian guild. Um, there's themes are, are, are very different. Those monsters that I was talking about in the Neverborn. Um, I think that getting started, if you were to buy a starter box with two factions and one of them you're not really associating with or connecting with, um, you're going to have a harder time getting into the game. So what we did is we made individual one-player starter boxes, one for each faction. So you dive into the aesthetic you like, and it helps create a foundation of characters that you can build upon later. Yeah, um, that's great. So we don't have all of them out yet. Um, 
we we have three out right now. We have the Bayou, um, which come with um, a bunch of gremlins on you know chickens and rabbits and roosters. They're they're the chaos uh, of the game. They're they're pure chaos, um, but it's fun and whimsy. Um, you have the Explorer Society, which is the latest uh, faction in the game. Uh, they are uh, kind of an an oddball group, um, kind of a collection of all sorts of things. Um, think of uh, extraordinary gentlemen, uh, oh. sort of sort of route. Um, and then we have the outcasts uh, uh, starter box, and they're kind of um, they're more than this, but essentially think of them as like the outlaws and the cowboys. That that's kind of like the the aesthetic the at, at first glance that you get. Um, there's a little bit more than that. There's some undead in there. There, there, uh, some. There's a a tyrant named Plague, who's basically um, an evil demigod uh, taking over the body of a person and just spreads poisonous rat nonsense to people. He's an outcast, <laughs> but generally cowboys. Um, All right. And we'll have more, uh, you know, as as time allows. Uh, the one we just announced was. Uh, for Neverborn, and it's got some mimics in it. Uh, so yeah, uh, there's a little bit of everything for everyone in Malifaux. Uh, that uh, Outcast starter box is sold out right now. That's uh... <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, third edition has uh, been doing really well. Yeah, uh, for us, yeah, it's it's been taking off, and um, that's great. Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely, and I think it's largely because. Uh, the pandemic certainly took a hit uh, because uh, on us because you have to be next to each other to to enjoy these games. Mm -hmm. um, but we have been unafraid of giving access to certain things like the app, the rules for free, letting people get into the game uh, as easily as possible, and then you can learn to play the game without even visiting a game store or pulling out, you know, a three by three mat and setting up terrain. We have Malifaux on Vassal, which is, um, if you're familiar with like roll 20 and like kind of that visual yeah. or like foundry and that sort of stuff, yeah. it, it, it'll feel familiar to you in that regard. It's like the over camera, the kind of circular avatars and that sort of thing. Uh, or on tabletop simulator, you could play the game. Well. Oh, you can. Um, okay. Yep. Yep. All the characters are on there. You can build a crew. Um, but it's really it, it. It's just to get started, right? Because the 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 feel and the specialness of these types of games is you know moving those fiddly bits. Yeah, all I agree. over the board. Yeah. I agree with that uh, for sure. Huh. Yeah, that's man. That is the one thing that's that uh, the pandemic has not helped with. You know, is that that in person. You know that that. That's the thing I loved most about about board gaming, right? Was let's get a group together. Let's you know, ev some of us have played this a hundred times. Some have never played it. You know, it's that mix of people and personalities, and and making mistakes. You know, and then trying to figure out how to back up and correct it. And you know, that's stuff that when you know you're playing digitally, a lot of times you can't even make those mistakes. You know, because it, it does a lot of right. that for you, right? So I feel like I learn less if if everything's kind of happening on its own at times. Oh yeah, absolutely. Even like on a personal level, right? Like you make a mistake, um, and you could just, or your your buddy makes a mistake that you're playing against, and you could just read it on their face that right. they they made it. Uh, you can't experience that same sort of thing digitally. Um, 
Oh, we, I think we have a pup. Sorry, I had to. <laughs> my <laughs> wife just came in the door. She goes, she's awake. <laughs> so I had to show everybody Luna. Say hi, Luna. Can you say hi? Oh, yes. I'll Adorable. take kisses all day. She is a mess. <laughs> all right. I had I had to at least show her. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. That's Luna is way more important than than moving around minis. Yeah. <laughs> but where were we? Now, like, right, like yeah. all I can think about his dog now. Right. Uh, there are some dogs in Malifaux. Uh, are there so, really? <laughs> oh yeah, we got a we got a bunch of dogs in the game. Um, uh, let me think. Uh, one character, Lord Cooper, um, who's kind of uh, a hunter of men. Um, so I, I should preface this by saying Malifaux, generally, the people in this world are not good. Uh, okay. It, it's 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 a gray area world. Um, um, so he's... Uh, but he has two dogs. He he trusts dogs more than people, and so he has uh, Ulir and Artemis, uh, named after, you know, gods of war, or gods of the hunt. Um, so he's got two giant bloodhounds, um, those are the, the two of the newest dogs that I can think of that we put in, but there's, there's a bunch of dogs in the game. Um, wait, nefarious in the chat says there's a dog named Luna in the game. Oh yeah. Yeah. There is a dog named Luna in the what? game. Um, yeah. Uh, and it's a, it's a, how do you not lead with that? Yeah. I, I don't know. Uh, I, I guess. Uh, so the thing about Malifaux is that it's been a game for, uh, it's been out for like forever you know as far as like game spaces go it's it's been out for 15 years or so mm. um i've been a part of it for this much time right, right. in comparison <laughs> so the the characters that come to mind first in mine are ones that i helped establish sure um luna was a character before i got there um uh works with uh or is is mccabe's uh Totem. Uh, it's like a free character you get when you uh, start up uh, with a certain master. Okay. And McCabe is kind of this uh, Indiana Jones-like sort of character. Um, okay. A little bit less ethical, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he but he's got Luna alongside him, um, an older uh, mastiff. All right. I, I'm gonna have to talk to my buddy Ryan McCabe about this, who's a humongous board game aficionado. And I'm sure he knows about this, so I'm going to have to <laughs> tag him after this and talk about it. <laughs> it's See, the thing that I don't like right now is I'm sitting here now with my wallet open wondering where I, where oh, I start, boy. right? Because, like, I, I love this stuff, so... You got the weird web store open in I a do, new tab. right yeah. now. <laughs> That's happening at this moment. Uh, <laughs> no, but I love it, like, and especially with a game like this where... That's the thing that I loved so much about Warhammer was there were so many different factions. And like you said, you pick the thing that resonates with you, but then each time you fight some other group, the encounter is completely different because of your individual strengths and weaknesses and how you interact with each other. Right. And that's right. I think that's the beauty of a world like this. Yeah. You, you might have the most powerful crew on average, but it just so happens that your opponent brought the counter this yeah. week, you know, and it's not your week and that's okay. You know, that's, that's the whole point and crew building, you know, you kind of, you get that customization feeling where you could, you could counter a counter, you know, mm. that sort of thing. So how, how does the deck play into this? So now, cause we're talking about, you know, you've got your miniatures, you've got, you said you've got some terrain, right? So you've got a, a board sounds like at least in my head, similar to what I would see in a Warhammer environment. So right. are you moving around 
Like, like what is, is the movement distance based? Like, do you measure things or like how, kind of, I guess I'm kind of asking, how does the game work? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there, there is measurement in the game there. Uh, that's how you move. Um, there are some general actions that you can take in, in, including, you know, walk, mm-hmm. um, in which case you would measure based on their move value and, and move them. Um, the deck is, if you're familiar with rolling dice and Warhammer, it's going to feel fairly similar. Okay. Um, you're going to have, uh, a deck of cards. Uh, it's 54 deck, uh, cards, uh, not 52. The jokers are included. Um, and you're also going to have uh, a hand of cards, uh, as well. And basically if you've rolled dice for, you know, I, I want to attack this character, mm-hmm. um, and I, I need to hit, uh, a success value um and then okay i i hit the success value then i have to uh, f- uh roll dice to see how much damage i hit mm-hmm. those sorts of things that right. it's going to feel uh fairly familiar in that regard the the major difference here is that that deck or uh, that uh hand uh, that you've got is what you can use to cheat fate with. Uh, that's the term oh. we use in the game so okay. Let's say you failed that that uh, that hit initially. You could cheat in a card and say, you know what, this the six that I flipped, I want it to be a twelve. And oh, so I'm flipping off the top of the deck for right. for those rolls or those things that I need to do, and then using my hand to augment. Right. Okay. Exactly. Cool. All right. Uh, and then on top of that, all of your actions—I don't want to say all of it, but in general terms, your actions are going to have uh, triggers on them. Um, which is essentially that suit associated with the card that you just did um, might end up modifying your attack. It might give you like a critical or, you know, some sort of new flavor uh, to the action that you're performing. Uh, and not all actions are going to have, you know, four suits associated with them, but um, essentially you want to line certain things up when you're, when you're trying to, get into ultra competitive game mode space like not only am i cheating in with this 12 to make sure that this is a success but i'm cheating this in with a 12 of rams which is one of the suits because Mm -hmm. i want this other effect to happen uh in addition to so that's kind of how cards work that's kind of like high level of it um is there a stack but, with your opponent too? Like, can I play a card and then they can play one on top of it, too, or like? Right, exactly. Okay. So you, it, yeah, um, you can cheat, they can cheat back, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, and it, it's uh, you're going to be flipping a card uh, and adding it to a certain number of one of your stats, and they're going to be flipping a card and adding it to their the defensive value. Um, but you're not always targeting like defense. Sometimes you're targeting their move value if mm. you're trying to like limit their move uh, and that sort of thing. So. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of the, the high level of it. Um, the, the other major separator of Malifaux versus, you know, other competitive, uh, tabletop games is that it's not about killing your opponent at all. Um, I mean, killing your opponent can help, uh, you know, fewer models on your opponent's side is certainly going to make certain things a little easier for you. Um, but it's, it's an objective driven game. Um, okay. so there's new objectives, uh, Per uh, per time you sit down, and then you're also going to be flipping over private objectives called schemes um, that you're going to be getting points off of. So really, it's a point-driven game. You're trying to complete objectives. You could 
in some crews, in some instances, you could just outright ignore your opponent as long as you're trying to complete the objectives in the table. Okay. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that sounds, man, that's, uh, oh, do, do you and your opponent, does your opponent know your objective? Uh, so there's, there's the core objective called the strategy. Um, both of you are going to have that same objective. Okay. Um, and then there's the private ones that you choose. And uh, once you get a point from them, that's when they get revealed. Uh, um, okay. Up until that, no, uh, they don't. I mean, once you're a seasoned player and you see a crew and you see certain schemes, there's a lot of guesswork involved. Right. Yeah. Um, so you can make informed decisions that way, but you you don't know uh, immediately off. Well, that's off just bat. part of the easy to understand, difficult to master, right? Like I like right. that where it's like, hey, the more I get comfortable, the more I start to understand strategy, then I can start to decipher this or at least have an idea of what might be coming and and prepare a little bit for it, you know, in the early stages of that game. I like yeah. that. It's nice. Um, the most recent release. Um, we do yearly releases for Malifo, um, where we release, you know, 50 to 70 new characters, new story, all that jazz. Um, we just kind of put the meta into a blender uh, with this one by... Uh, essentially, what we did is we took every master in the game and we gave them a new version. So oh. when you're building your crew, not only are you saying, hey, I want to play English Ivan... It uh, who's like the the spy master in the game. Um, I want to play English Ivan. It's I want to play this version of English Ivan because I want to be this aggressive summoner, mm. or I want to play this version of English Ivan, um, and I I want to do more schemes and you know spy mastery nonsense. Um, and your opponent doesn't know which which version of English Ivan you've chosen, but based on certain elements in the game, they could make some guesswork. Uh, happen so gotcha. that's kind of the the big mix-up right now um that no one it, it released august-ish august through october because we release it at conventions and then we have the big release uh it people are still kind of getting their their fingers into that trying to figure out what's best and it's been really fun to watch the community be like, I, I don't know how this works. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Gotta shake things up. You make everybody think right. again. Like, <laughs> yeah, I love that. So uh, I'm looking here. It looks like you've worked on six different titles at this company. And, and what's weird or not weird. <laughs> what's weird. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that was not intentional. Uh, so what's interesting <laughs> is you, you know, you're also doing regular releases of, of at least Malifaux. Is that true for a lot of these games? Are you kind of like you got your hands in all of them all the time? Yes. Oh, uh, so that man. is true, but um, it's it's different. Um, each project, my responsibilities are different. Like for Malifaux, for example, I'm not actually in the nitty-gritty of the mechanics. Okay. Uh, 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 I have a, a designer uh, on my team, Matt. He's brilliant when it comes to creating uh, these synergies within the characters and stuff like that. For Malifaux, really, my job is to make sure that the the characters play the way that they should play on the table, uh, that the the thematic through line makes sense, that, you know, English Ivan feels like a spy master, 
um, on the table and the the certain elements to the character you're going to see on the table are also implemented in the story. So making sure that it all feels connected and real and that you are making thematic decisions as much as uh, competitive ones. Um, so that that's kind of my responsibility for Malfo. More of the 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 story driven aspects of the game. Okay. And so you know, I, I want to make sure we talk about Vagrant Song because I know that's something like you've mentioned is is your baby. So yes. <laughs> uh, so so let's definitely talk about that. But I'm I'm curious, like, do you have that kind of across all of these games? Do you have something that is kind of your role on each of them? Or oh well, let me let me back up and ask a different question. Are you the design lead? across all the games but you have people that that have different levels of you know their their ownership of those games uh, as well right exactly so okay. i'm i'm the design lead at weird games okay but i'm not the the writer for through the breach gotcha. which is the rpg in the same world i basically am just making sure that that project is staying connected to you know everything else in the malifo universe um, making sure that um, those mechanics are fun, uh, making sure that you know playtester feedback gets addressed, um, and working with the the designer of through the breach, uh, through you know any obstacles that they're running into and that sort of thing. So, in in a lot of ways, I'm kind of like the the team lead across all these projects. Okay, uh, that makes Vagrant sense. Song is a different story. Uh, yeah, tell Vagrant us about Song, that. So that's the one that. I had my teeth in as far as the design is concerned and other people on the team certainly helped with it and, um, you know, helped me write scenarios and stuff like that. But it was kind of like the inverse where they would be the ones giving me feedback and working alongside it while I was in the, the, the meat of the project. Uh, so yeah. Um, Vagrant song is our brand new board game. Um, it's technically not even released yet, only, but you wouldn't know it because the hype has been through the roof. Great. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't believe the, the reception that we're already getting for the game. Um, we're, it's experiencing shipping was, which is the only reason why it's out, uh, not out yet. Uh, we're aiming for January. Everything's looking like January, which is great. Um, is that just like supply chain issues with, with the pandemic and shipping? Like, or... I mean, that, yes, it's, it's, it, uh, it's been a nightmare for the board game industry. Yeah, uh, uh, we could we could talk about that for two hours by itself. Uh, <laughs> Maybe we it's, should. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's it's certainly an interesting topic from from my perspective. It's more of like a a, a pain point because we had aimed to have Vagrant Song out in October. Um, it would have been the perfect release for you know a spooky Halloween game. Okay, um, but. Um, we can't get things off of boats and onto trucks, you know, is the oversimplification of it all. Yeah. Um, and it, it's affecting everyone who is uh, making anything from China and getting it into the States. The rest of the world is l largely unaffected at this point. But uh, the Vagrant Song. Yeah. No, <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's really uh, – and, you know, we had talked about this a little bit before, and, you know, I was kind of looking at it a few weeks ago. And it looks really neat to me, right? Like, uh, like the the vibe is cool. I like the the look of the board. You said it's cooperative. I didn't realize that before. Yep. That's that's yep, really fully cool. cooperative. 
and that's that's something that is near and dear to me right now for sure. Uh, so like it's there's a uh, I can see why there's a lot of hype, right? Because there's there's a lot of of good, especially pandemic type things going for this. So so tell us a little bit about the game itself, like what well, like what um kind of what got you excited about it? Why do you feel so strongly about it? And then you know kind of what that turned into into that shipping product. Uh, so a few years ago, I pitched the game. Um, I it's kind of a culmination of all of the things that I'm interested in. Like I, I grew up on Jack Kerouac books. I grew up on horror films, uh, on dungeon crawlers, you know, uh, and RPGs and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just kind of was a collection of all those things. Um, and I wanted to make. At the time, I pitched it as a pure dungeon crawler, and I wanted to make a dungeon crawler with a theme that wasn't orcs and dragons. I wanted to have something that was truly unique. Um, and I guess we could go all the way back to the thing we started talking about with with Final Fantasy VI, because that was another major inspiration here, is the Phantom Train on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that pulled a lot of inspiration from that. There's no suplexing the train. Or Phoenix Downing uh, in this, but um, but yeah, I, I pitched it, and it was such a wild idea that it got approved, and um, we kind of had this um, like a, a year and a half brainstorming session essentially for the game because uh, we are a small team, um, and working on essentially at the time it was a side project. So other things took a uh, larger priority for it. But once we were able to find the time for it, we realized that uh, a lot of the issues in these, this genre we wanted to solve um, while also creating something unique and uh, refreshing. Um, one major part of it is setup. Okay. Um, and and this, uh, this ultimately helped us end up shaping the game and, and redirecting it from a dungeon crawler into a pure boss battle. Um, so if you've played any dungeon crawlers, uh, any, any board game dungeon crawlers, you you you, you kind of dread the setup part, right? Yeah. Um, because it's going to take about a half an hour to set up, and the session might only be a half an hour to 45 minutes. And then there's the teardown you got to worry about. Yeah. Um, you know, That's uh, the so reason I haven't are... played Gloomhaven yet. Like it's <laughs> yeah, I've got it down there collecting dust, and I Same. love Gloomhaven. I, I played like uh, I played a bunch of the game, and I just I can't get it to the table because it does take so long to set up. Yeah, Vagrant um, Song takes five minutes. Oh. Uh, you you pull out the board, you put some tokens in the place where the scenario tells you to place some tokens. They're just terrain essentially. Um, you put some tokens on the you know the health tracks and the tracks. You get you get your character out. You're done. Um, you you read the scenario text and that's about it. Um, so that was one major thing that we uh, I, I feel like we accomplished really well uh, with it. That we, is we, we quite a it. feat. Uh, that that's, yeah. <laughs> that is that is no small thing for those that that don't understand the the magnitude of what we're talking about. Like that's that is a big deal for sure. Yeah, and a, a lot of companies are doing like the whole app driven stuff, and I applaud those. Uh, I think they're. Uh, like Mansions of Madness, the newest Descent, uh, they do app-driven stuff to kind of minimize that. Um, we decided not to go that route um, for numerous reasons. It just wasn't the right feel for this game. Mm-hmm. You know, having 
looking at a mobile phone while you're the 1930s hobo just didn't feel right you know <laughs> sure yeah yeah <laughs> that that makes sense yeah <laughs> um but yeah uh so it it's a it's a campaign game uh like Loomhaven. uh there's 23 scenarios in the game you're going to be going from one to the next uh you're going to be your your character is going to grow uh it's a four player game but there's six vagrants to choose from so halfway through the game, if you're like, you know what, the revivalist just really isn't meshing with me. You, uh, first, you can customize the revivalist so it can, but let's say you wanted to try another character. You absolutely can uh, in between scenarios. That was important to us. Um, players can drop in and out of the campaign um, from session to session, which was really important to us because, as we were just talking about a while ago, about it's difficult to get friends to the table it's even more difficult to get the same friends to the table. Sometimes, you know, a friend just can't show up, but you want to keep playing. Uh, so having the ability to just have that character drop out was important oh, to us. That's great. Yeah. Um, and the game scales based on player count. Um, there's so many different things that I want to talk about as far as the design of the game is concerned, but I keep looking at that clock thinking, I don't think we have the time for it. Well, um, we have 15 minutes, right? So, okay. and so, so feel, feel free to use it. But I feel like also we, we're probably going to want to schedule another episode because there's, I feel like we haven't even talked about, you know, three of your other games even a little bit. Right. So, <laughs> but yeah, feel free, uh, like dig in, man. Let, let's hear it. Okay. Uh, so one of the more unique elements of Vagrant Song is the bindle. Um, okay. And this is this is kind of one of those things that I wanted from the start uh, of the the creation of the idea was this bindle. Um, in the 1930s, hobos and train hopping was not something uh, we don't we we think about it these days in more of a negative context. But back in the day, it was a lifestyle choice. My grandpa um, was a hobo for a while and went moved around to get jobs. Yeah, yeah, it, it was a completely normal way to live. And in some regards, I wish that I could live that way today, but <laughs> right, <laughs> a lot less pressure in some regards. <laughs> um, but the bindle was, you know, a, a classic staple. The, you know, the the plaid bag, uh, yeah. a cloth bag attached to a stick. Um, so we wanted to make sure that that was a component in the game, but we weren't sure exactly how. Um, ultimately, it ended up shaping one of the the more interesting parts of the game, um, and that's, uh, so as a player, there's, there's tokens in the bag, um, and as a vagrant, you can draw from it and get various effects. There's five different tokens in the bag, um, so you could heal yourself, you could hurt the enemy a little bit and do that sort of stuff. Uh, fairly straightforward stuff. Um, but what, how it changes and makes it really interesting is that that's also the enemy AI. Um, so once your turn is over, the uh, the the haint goes, which is you know uh, just a southern word for ghost. In uh, we we tried to use as much Americana folklore mm -hmm. terms as we could, um, but they're going to use that same resource, so they're going to draw uh, a token, and the the token that might normally um, heal you is going to be the most devastating thing that the the ghost the enemy is going to do against you. Um, huh. So. What that ends up doing is it ends up creating a new resource management system where do I use this token? Because I know that when I use this token, 
I'm going to essentially eventually put it back into the bag, and now the oh. enemy is going to have the ability to uh, make that attack action happen. Um, or do I hold on to it for as long as I humanly can before I end up, you know, turning into a ghost myself? Yeah. Uh, so that was a that was a, a, a kind of a, a fun thing that we ended up creating, um, and it, it really makes the AI and the enemy system really quick too. On top of that, because it's it's a matter of drawing a token and then reading a, a part in the the scenario book about how it gets resolved, and that's it. And that's the whole. Uh, uh, enemy turn. And that's how we did uh, scaling in the game as well. So in a lot of these boss battlers, you're going to have all the characters go at once, and then the enemy goes. And this, it's player goes, enemy goes, player goes, enemy goes. And you get the, the who goes when, as far as the players go, is entirely up to the group. It's a, one of the cooperative conversation points. Who wants to go first? Um, right. There's no initiative or anything like that. And you get to make some interesting decisions based on, like, well, I'm not really near the enemy right now, so I probably don't need to go right now. Maybe maybe the Empress needs to go first, because they need to get away from this ghost and for whatever reason, sort of thing. Um, so, yeah. Uh, the game is crushingly difficult. It is... Uh, cooperative games are more fun when they are that way when yeah. you have to work out this puzzle um but it is a fail forward game um which i thought was really uh important to do because if you've ever played any game that's not dark souls essentially and you have to repeat a level that has a lot of narrative elements in the game which this game does it could feel repetitive mm. so when you die in or lose in vagrant song you don't you don't repeat the same boss. Things happen to your group instead, and you move on to the next boss. Uh, there are only so many of those that you actually get, so many uh, move-on cards, essentially, that you get in the game until something extraordinarily bad happens. But uh, you're never stuck. And I thought the, that was one element that we were... Uh, it was really important to us, uh, especially in the later aspects of the and it helped shape a lot of the stuff that we were able to do with the um, Because with the 23 scenarios of the game and how the perspective of board gamers and how they talk about replayability and that sort of thing, we wanted to make sure that each one was unique. Mm. Um, I don't know if you're anything like me, I have a ton of board games that I've played maybe twice. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, um, getting a board game to the table at all is is ch a challenge in itself. So having to repeat the same scenario over and over again each time you put it to the table is something we'd... is a frustration point we wanted to avoid, essentially. Yeah, that totally makes sense. It's just like any other design pillar, right? Like, that's... Well, one, I appreciate the pillars that you chose, like the things that were important to you, are the kind of things that would be important to me. So like, but it's cool because it helps you make the right decisions for the rest of the design of the game. Like it's, it's such right. a key component that people don't often realize that is, is really important for the development of something. Yeah, absolutely. And some of those things didn't, they weren't pillars from the beginning, like the bindle, for example, we knew that the bindle was a, a an aspect of the game that we wanted to do, but 
it wasn't always the way the enemies were. Mm. Um, for a long time, we had this uh, this deck of cards that we were trying to automate. Um, we wanted to make the the big surprise being uh, when you flip over uh, an enemy card, they could end up going the next turn, and you didn't know when they were gonna go. Oh. So uh, <laughs> it was like a scary like they could create like a chain of attacks. Um, the math just didn't end up working that way. So. Uh, after, you know, walking away frustrated with the system that we thought was golden for so long, um, I, I don't remember exactly how long it was, but it was like a week or so, uh, came back into the office with this crazy idea, and it was one of the crazy ideas that didn't immediately get shut down, <laughs> which is rare. Usually, sometimes I come in and I'm like, okay, we're going to do the campaign structured like a song, everyone. And it's like, no, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, there's a, a question in the chat from Nefarious asking, uh, "Did you ha do you have a favorite haint in the game? Is haint the right way? To, did I pronounce that right? Yep, haint, okay. haint is the right way. So the word haint comes from, um, uh, if you've ever been in the South and you've seen those uh, those porches with the, the ceiling painted oh, light yeah. blue, mm -hmm. um, that's haint blue. And the reason why those porches are painted that way is to keep spirits at bay, keep haints really? at bay. Yep. So that's where that whole thing comes from. Um, I have a bunch of, uh, uh, haints that I've, uh, that I really enjoy. Um, it changes by the day. Um, today is the Boilermen. Uh, they, they are both disgusting and adorable at the same time. <laughs> um, we try to pull a lot of inspiration from real, uh, either American ghost stories or real, uh, events that happened. Um. The Boilermen were pulled from uh, a story about uh, a train that uh, an avalanche hit, um, and these people got stuck. And um, the the uh, engineers tried to keep the train hot, and the 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 boiler and engine exploded. Um, so here we have this the Boilermen is this melding of three people. Because um, they tried to keep it so hot, but with also like these metal spikes coming out of it and stuff like that. Um, so uh, maybe I should have prefaced this. If uh, look up the game, because the game is uh, in the nineteen twenties rubber yeah. hose style. Uh, it, it's not like body horror stuff. Um, it, it, it there's there's a sense of whimsy to this darkness yeah, that I'm there, describing. There is, there is. It's 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 Disney esque, right? Like it, it's right. it's whimsical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, that that's uh, it, leading up to that that boss fight. Um, I think is is uh, a lot of fun because he's he's one of the last bosses in one of the chapters. There's three chapters, so. Well, the fact Spoilers, that you said, yeah, nice. <laughs> well, the fact that you said that it changes from day to day means a couple of things. One, it probably means that they're balanced well, right? Like, and that there's you know there's enough to like about each of them that there's not a clear favorite. But it also could mean that, you know, you, well, it also probably means that you as a designer put the same amount of love across them, right? And that's, you know, if you feel good about all of them, that means we're going to feel good about all of them. I mean, that's that's the hope. That, right. That, that, <laughs> after you play it, you're going to have to tell me the same thing if you still feel that way. But. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, like, this asshole thing. No. <laughs> right. Um. 
but yeah, uh, that was that was a really major uh, pillar from the start is making sure that each boss felt very different. Uh, I, I, I have to always preface this by like I love dungeon crawlers, but I think we've all had those dungeons where like this feels like the dungeon we did ten sessions ago. Yeah. You know, um, that was something that we we wanted to avoid at all costs. Um, so I I think we succeeded. Uh, players seem to think so. Um, well, it's hyped enough, so our, yep. uh, so that's uh, that's a good sign, and and I look forward to checking it out myself. Uh, so yeah, January it should be at local game stores. Uh, if you can't get a hold of it there, um, we're already accepting pre-orders for our second print run. Which, it, from a board game board gamer standpoint, that's just insane to have a second print run before the first print run's even out there. Absolutely, um, it's it's awesome. Um, but if you want to play it right now, um, it's on Tabletop Simulator for free. The first two scenarios are on there, so you can get a, a good feeling of the game right off the bat. Um, one thing I do recommend, if you have two monitors, this is just how I played it, um, is have the you can go to the Weird Games website, download the scenario book and rule book as PDF separately, and you can have them on one screen while playing the game on the other. Uh, it's just something I recommend because it's just a little bit. It can get a little messy on one screen. Like yeah. imagine a board game on one screen. So you see, I'm that nerd that's going to print it out and and have sure. because I need to be able to flip through a rule book, man. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I actually I want both. I want to be able to flip through because I have like object permanence, uh, you know. So I want to know like I'm like, oh, that's on page 32, you know. But but also I want to be able to search. So having a digital right. one where I can search for key phrases, I want both. I'm greedy. Yeah. Give me give me both options. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to avoid the rule book altogether, there's already um uh, a few people who have uh put up how to play guides. So you could YouTube that sort of thing. Um I, I think that at this point a lot of players playing board games are learning that way more often. Um Yeah. So it's the first thing I do right. now. Any game yeah. I'm gonna play, I go watch you know, a, a quick overview of it. And then I watch like, you know, let me see somebody play it. Cause I want to make sure when I sit down, I know what I'm doing. Like, I don't want to get any spoilers necessarily, right. but I want to feel confident enough to where when I'm reading the rules, things are clicking instead of me trying to like decipher everything in my head. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, and then you get, you have the rule book to look up, you know, the weird corner case issue. Right. Know? Yeah. Or, I'm with you. All right. One last little off-topic question before we end. It's been asked in the chat. What do you got in that fish tank back there? Oh, oh boy. <laughs> okay. So one one really small thing. If if you're getting into the game industry, have a hobby that's not games. This is mine. Um, this keeps my head straight. Um, so in this uh, aquarium, I've got uh, four vampire shrimp. What? What is that? Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, they're they're peaceful. But they're they're like five inches long, um, and they're they're fan shrimp. So uh, they fan in the water column. They do this all day. Okay. Uh, I don't know why they're called vampire shrimp. I think it might be because their claws look devastating. But they're gentle giants. Um, and then I've got a, a bunch of really tiny uh, catfish in there. Um, wow. And, um, among all sorts of things, you can't see anything in there. Right. Because right now. Uh, all the the shrimp are like right no over here they're right by 
where my thumb is just kind of hiding by one of the jets. Um, and then every other critter is so tiny, you got to get up there. But um, that's all live plants. Um, it's not the, the, the fake stuff. That's... Is it seawater? Is it? No, th no. this is fresh water. Yeah, uh, okay. yeah well, salt water is scary yeah. to me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, all but right. yeah, this is this is my hobby to keep me away, but keep me creative. Uh, keep me away from working too much, but keep me creative. So, uh, all right, that's a that is a great answer. Like I, I didn't expect that. Like that's there's a lot to that. I love it. Oh yeah, yeah. That this is this tank has been up for like two, three years now. Nice. Uh, so it's pretty healthy. Do you have another tank, or is it? Uh, yes, yeah, not in here. Uh, <laughs> so the. <laughs> Like like your Warhammer uh, obsession back in the day. Oh yeah. Once once you get into the aquarium hobby, you can't just have one aquarium. <laughs> You're like actually the bed the base of my bed is a giant aquarium that I sleep on top of. And... Uh yeah no I can't go that far otherwise uh, my my wife would probably separate from me but yeah the... <laughs> that's uh, funny. we we've got another tank in the it, it's not this is the bigger tank but gotcha. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it though. Like eventually, but you know what? I actually need another tank for this kind of environment, and then I need this other one. That I know, ten years right. from now, we'll we'll touch base, and you'll have a room filled <laughs> of aquariums, a, the aquarium room. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. My my dream is you know a koi pond, if nice. I could ever get that going. But uh, that that requires about, you know, a thousand gallons. So oh, yeah. figuring out that space. <laughs> yeah. Especially do koi ponds go inside at all? Or are they generally outside? Everyone I've seen is outside. I'm just curious. So, uh, it, it depends on where you live. Uh, if you live in an area where the water is going to freeze over, generally you're going to want to do like an in and out system. Oh, Right. Where you have something during, you know, spring and summer, and then you bring them in oh, okay. uh, for winter and that sort of thing. Um, but you can have them out there, um, at least down here in Georgia, you could have them out. Um, the the different problems are birds. Uh, you got to make sure that uh, they don't become prey, you know. Man, I, you can tell how little I know about aquariums with my questions, I'm sure. But like this, I I love hearing stuff like this. Though. Like I never even thought about the the fish being prey. Like that's uh, oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, there's or there's prey hawks, upon, all, I guess I should hawks say. and owls, all sorts of big birds in this area. So I'd have to have nets and uh, you know scarecrow equivalents, you know, all around it. Uh, and that yeah. Sort of thing. All right. Well, yeah. Next time I'll talk to you all about aquariums. That, that's a two-hour <laughs> spinoff. Executive says. Right. So that's the third episode we're gonna do. No, no. But for real though, we've got four other games of yours that we three we didn't even mention, and so we've got plenty of other stuff to talk about. And uh, so when we're done here, we'll chat. We'll find some more time for you to join us again in the near future. But for now. I'm going to jump off and say my goodbyes. I really appreciate you doing this. I had a blast. The time flew. Like literally. I look down, you're like looking at the yeah. clock and I'm like, oh my gosh, so we got, I, I had no idea we were 15 <laughs> minutes from the end at that point. So really great time. Uh, appreciate you joining us and uh, hopefully we can do it again soon. Yeah, I had a blast. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Appreciate you and I will talk to you soon. Have a good one. Yeah, you too.
Thank you for listening. And don't forget, you can join us live every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv forward slash Jamison Doral. Every Tuesday, I'll have a new podcast episode ready for you. Be sure to follow me on all of my social media using the links in the show notes and join the Dev Team Discord to be a part of the conversation anytime. We'll see you soon.